You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Last week, if you were here, we had a uh, guest preacher, uh, Ross Lester from the Austin Stone. And I don't know about you, but uh, I was uh, so I so appreciated Ross's depth of insight, uh, his incredible humor, uh, his Christ-centeredness. And as he was preaching, I kept thinking, you know, if I could preach with his South African accent, I would sound way more profound than I do. I would listen to someone read the dictionary with that accent. Uh, you can say whatever you want, and I'm in. Uh, so I, I loved it. Who would be, um, think about this, who would be like the best guest preacher ever to have at church? Who would, who would you choose? Would you choose like Tim Keller, Matt Chandler? Uh, yeah. How about John Stott or Charles Spurgeon? It'd be amazing. The answer is Jesus. Uh, you know this, right? Jesus would be the best guest preacher uh, ever. And in our passage today, Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth as the guest preacher. And it goes really well. I mean, it goes really well until it doesn't. All right. If I were to give you a visual illustration of this passage, this is what it looks like. In verse 16, Jesus comes to Nazareth, and in verse 30, he leaves Nazareth. And the only thing that happens in between is a church service where Jesus is the guest preacher. And from verse 16 to verse 22, everything is up. Everything is good. Everything is awesome. And then in verse 22, everything goes south. (laughs) Everything goes downhill. It's all good, and then it's all bad. And verse 22 is the turning point. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage today. We're going to look at Jesus' sermon in verses 16 through 21, and then we're going to look at the response of the congregation starting in verse 22. But before we do that, let me just bring you up to speed with what's been happening before Jesus comes to Nazareth. The Holy Spirit has been at work in and through Jesus. Luke places a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You know, he wrote Luke and Acts, and both are about the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke is about the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Last week in Luke chapter 3, Jesus was baptized, and what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon him, indicating this is the one. This is my beloved son, God says. Then, this is how Luke chapter 4 begins. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so again, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he had been baptized, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And and there in the wilderness, Jesus shows himself to be the truer and greater Adam because Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Remember when Adam encountered Satan in the garden, uh, he failed to trust God. He failed to obey God. But Jesus doesn't when he encounters Satan. 
He's, he's righteous. He's faithful. Even when he's tempted by the greatest spiritual adversary in the universe, he's faithful. He's righteous. He is the perfect human being. Then right after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he begins his public ministry. This is how Luke tells it. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. You just heard it read. The beginning of his ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee, which was the region that he, around where he grew up, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. Everybody was glorifying him. So it's interesting, Luke doesn't give any specific details about Jesus' public ministry other than he's killing it in Galilee. Word spreading everywhere, everybody loves him, everybody's praising him. So by the time he comes into Nazareth as the guest preacher in verse 16, he's already a celebrity. He's already had incredible success in ministry. But for some reason, Luke doesn't choose to detail anything about his success in ministry in Galilee, Luke decides to detail what happens in Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? And I think it's because what happens in Nazareth is sort of a paradigm for what we're going to see in Jesus's ministry throughout Luke. Again and again and again, we're going to see some of the things we see today. It's a paradigm. This is the first close-up look at Jesus's public ministry. All right, let's dive into it. Let's first look at the sermon. Look at verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I love this. Jesus made it his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus was a churchgoer. I love that. But I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by it, but I'm also challenged by it. Because he who was the Word of God, for some reason, saw it necessary to go and sit under the Word of God every week. He who was the perfect Son of God, for some reason, saw it necessary to go and gather with those who were far from perfect, because they were the people of God, and he belonged to them. And don't you know that on this particular Sunday, or this particular, it would be Saturday, uh, the, the synagogue was packed, because they heard Jesus was going to be there, right? Standing room only. This, the hometown boy who'd been out around Galilee making a name for himself was coming home, and he's going to be at church, so get there early. Get a good seat. Now, the typical synagogue service would start with probably prayers, with some singing of the Psalms. Then they would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Then there would be a scripture reading. First from the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then there would be a reading from the prophets. After that, one of the qualified men would give a sermon or a teaching about one of uh, the scriptures. And then the service would end with Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Their service was very similar to ours. There was prayers, there was singing, there was a scripture reading, there was a sermon, there was blessing. Jesus was going to do the reading from the prophets that day, and then he was going to give a sermon about that scripture. It was normal 
for a distinguished visitor to be invited to preach. And so look what happens. Verse 17. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. So he, he, it seems that he got to choose where he was going to read from Isaiah because he found this particular scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, the emphasis on God's spirit is upon me, he says, because he has anointed me. That's messianic. That's Christ language. The Christ is the anointed one of God. He's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news, gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and then he adds a line from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. Luke is probably summarizing what he read here uh, because usually a, a reading would be longer than this. What's interesting is that Jesus leaves out part of Isaiah 61, verse 2, which says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves out the part about vengeance. It's not that God is not going to bring judgment one day. He's just not going to bring judgment on that particular day. See, Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. He had come to bring favor. His coming was the sweet song of good news. And so he ends the scripture reading on that note, the note of good news, the note of favor. Now look at what happens in verse 20. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can't you feel the anticipation in, in the room? Jesus sat down, which meant that he was going to preach because the preacher would sit in, in those days. And I think we need to bring that back, all right? You're getting to sit. I would like to sit. He sat down, and everybody's looking at him. Everybody's fixed on him, it says. Nobody was daydreaming or distracted. Nobody was checking the cowboy score, right? Not that anybody in here is doing that. They're fixed on him. You could have heard a pin drop, because what's he going to say about this? He's going to preach now. Well, look how his sermon starts. Here's the first line of his sermon, verse 21. He began by saying to them, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, these words that I just read, which Isaiah wrote 700 years ago, are being fulfilled today, right here, in my person. And I wish the Spirit of God had given Luke the editorial freedom after verse 21 to write the word, boom, boom. It's like a, it's a mic drop moment. People were like, did Jesus just say that? And they're like, yeah, he, he did just say that. It's, it's quite a line to open a sermon with. He really has their attention now for sure. Jesus selects this particular passage on purpose. Right? You, you know the guest preacher is going to give you his best stuff, right? 
He picks, the, he picks this passage on purpose. Out of all the things in all the scriptures that he could have said about himself, this is what he chose. This would be his mission statement. This is why he came. So Jesus begins to preach on this passage. We don't have the sermon here, uh, but we would understand that he would begin to explain what he came to do and whom he came to reach according to this passage. Notice that it says he came to do two things. He came to proclaim, the Christ came to proclaim and to liberate. Three out of the four verbs that describe the work of the Messiah in this passage are verbs of proclamation. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus was anointed to be a preacher, but he would also be a liberator. It says he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus would not only preach the gospel, he would enable the promises of the gospel to come true in his person. He would set people free. He would liberate them. Now, whom did he come to reach? Like, who would benefit from his ministry? What well, says right there, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. When he says the poor, this can mean the materially poor, or, uh, but also it can mean the spiritually poor. It likely means both. If he only meant the materially poor, that would mean there's no good news for wealthy sinners. But we know there is good news, even for wealthy sinners. Like Jesus came for, the, for impoverished people of all kinds. Jesus uses the same word here that he uses in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed, is the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's blessed? The poor in spirit. What do they get? They get the kingdom of heaven. But those who are materially poor usually have an easier time recognizing their need for blessing, their need for good news, more than the rich do, because they know they're needy. He says, I proclaim liberty to the captives. That's those who are in bondage. That word captives means prisoners of war, those who are taken captive and held in bondage, which in many ways describes the entire human race, held in bondage to sin, bondage to Satan, bondage to false gods. The blind are both the physically blind and the spiritually blind. Jesus will heal actual blind people in his ministry. Not all of the blind people, but some of them. He won't do it all the time, but he'll do it some of the time. And those healings will point to something more profound, which is, I'm the light of the world. I came to set you free from spiritual blindness, to set you free from darkness into the light. And lastly, he mentions the oppressed that word oppressed literally means shattered. Those who are broken in pieces by life. Those who are crushed by life. The oppressed are broken and they know it. Jesus came to bring good news. And the ones who welcome that good news are the ones who know they need it. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. In other words, people who are desperate. Like people, people who recognize their weakness, who know they can't save themselves. Do you see yourself at all in that list that Jesus gives? Do you see yourself as desperately needy and unable to save yourself? Jesus will not be good news to you if you don't. He won't be good news to you. I think, 
I think we have a higher risk of missing Jesus if we're wealthy, if we're educated, if we're competent, if we're comfortable, if we're used to living a lifestyle of autonomy. And, And those things describe almost all of us, right? Like when we have a lot of stuff and a lot of freedom, it's easy to trust in ourselves or or to trust in all the things that we pad our lives with. But Jesus, according to this, came to save those who can't save themselves. He's good news for the desperate and for the hopeless, for those who are aware of their brokenness, aware of their blindness, aware of their poverty. That's what Jesus' sermon was about. Now, Let's look at the congregation's response, starting in verse 22. Remember, verse 22 is the turning point in the passage. Look at verse 22, Luke 4, verse 22. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So there's like a murmur in the, in the crowd. And they're like, wow, Jesus, he's a really good preacher. I was not expecting this. <laughs> he's preaching God's grace like I've never heard before. He's so eloquent. He's so engaging. He's so authoritative. But wait a minute. Don't we know this guy? And this is the turn. Midway through verse 22. Look at continuing at verse 22. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Like Joseph the carpenter? We know his dad and his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. They've lived in town for years. Jesus is is one of us. Why is he saying all these amazing things about himself? Who does he think he is? God's gift to the world? He seems to be suggesting that we are helpless, that we're poor, that we're blind, that we're captive, that we're oppressed, and that we need him to help us. It's starting to feel like he's talking down to us, that he's somehow better than us. You know what? We're going to need to see more from him than a really good sermon if we're going to believe in him. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Not because he's God, but because he grew up with them. Verse 23 and 24. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll say, what we've heard from, that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They've heard about Jesus' ministry all over Galilee, especially some of the stuff he did up at Capernaum. And they're like, hey, do some of those miracles down here. Do some of that stuff in your town. Heal our town. Impress us. Inspire us. Do something. Give us a sign to prove that you're the Christ. See, they're they're too familiar with Jesus to be in awe of him. Isn't that interesting? Like they know just enough about Jesus to think they know everything about Jesus. And they're not impressed. Familiarity can lead to unbelief. And I think this is a caution for us who are around the things of Jesus a lot, who've gotten pretty familiar with Jesus. Like, are you so familiar with Jesus that you're not impressed with him anymore? It's like, yeah, 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 Jesus died for my sins. I hear that all the time. 
Tell me something I don't know. Yeah, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I, I got it. I can tell you all about that. Anything else? And it's like, it's not that impressive. That's a frightening place to be, isn't it? Knowing just enough about Jesus to make you yawn. I want to suggest that if you're not in awe of Jesus, that you haven't gotten familiar with the real Jesus. Like you might know some stuff about him, but you are not getting to know him. Your familiarity is causing you to miss him. And Jesus is saying in verse 24 to the congregation in his hometown, hey, y'all are biased against me because I grew up here. You need a savior and your savior is standing right in front of you, but you're rejecting me because I'm a Nazarene, just like you. You think you know the real me, but you don't. It's a scary place to be. You think you know the real me, but you don't. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. God sent his own people, a prophet. He sent them the prophet, and they rejected him. And so Jesus basically says, I'm going to take my ministry elsewhere. Like if those near me won't receive me, then maybe those far away will receive me. And he gives two examples of when this happened in the Old Testament. He talks about two prophets who took their ministry far away to people who actually knew their need. First, he mentions Elijah in verse 25 and 26. It's a story from 1 Kings chapter 7, or 1 Kings chapter 17. There was a famine in the land. People were starving to death. And God sent Elijah, who was Israel's prophet at the time, to a Gentile widow, not to an Israelite widow, to a Gentile widow in Zarephath. And when he came to her, she was about to make... She was, she was using the last of her oil and flour to make just a little cake for her and her son that they were going to eat before they died. And Elijah said to her, hey, don't do that. Make me something to eat first, <laughs> and then make something to eat for your, your, uh, you and your son. Because God has, has told me that your oil and, and your flour is not going to run out till the famine uh, is, is over. And she did it. She gave up the last bit of her food to Elijah. And you know what happened? Her flour and her oil did not run out. She was saved. Why? Because she trusted the prophet. And why did she trust the prophet? Because she was desperate. She had no other options. Next, Jesus mentions Elisha in verse 27. It's a story from 2 Kings, chapter 5. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. He's a Gentile. Right? He, he's, the, he's a powerful man, a man of great means, but he has leprosy. And he doesn't know what to do about it. And so this powerful Gentile commander is sent to uh, Elisha, who's the prophet in Israel at the time, uh, to, to try to get a cure for his leprosy. And Elisha tells him, hey, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cured. And Naaman is angry about this because he's like, I came all the way down here. You'd think the prophet would come out and do some kind of big ceremony, wave his arms, call on the Lord and, and heal me. But instead he says, go wash in the river seven times. I could have done that back at home. We got lots of rivers. He's angry. 
And Naaman's friends convince him to try what Elisha had said. And he does. And when he does it, he's cleansed. Why? Because he trusted the prophet. And why did he trust the prophet? Because he was desperate. He was out of options. And at this point, the congregation in Nazareth has heard enough from Jesus. (laughs) They're like, are you saying, Jesus, that we are needy like those two Gentiles? Is that what you're saying? And, and, And are you saying that you are like Elijah and Elisha? I think we're done with this sermon. Verse 28. When they heard these things, everyone in the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Uh, This is not the kind of sermon feedback that any pastor wants. If you don't, I, I just prefer you email me if you don't like the sermon. Right. Do not throw me off the cliff. Jesus obviously hit a nerve here. Doesn't he? Like he was preaching good news, but all of a sudden it sounded like bad news to the people. What's the nerve that Jesus touched? I think it's the nerve of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. He was preaching grace, and grace sounded good to them. Grace sounded beautiful to them. They're they're like, yes, grace sounds good for those people, the poor, the the, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. And then he realized they're talking about, he's talking about them, and they got offended. Grace is offensive because it says we can't save ourselves. And if we're committed to our own righteousness, if we're committed to our own sufficiency, then we'll reject grace. Grace. Self-righteousness violently opposes grace. It wants to throw grace off the cliff, right? Self-sufficiency adamantly rejects grace. It wants to kick grace out of the synagogue. This synagogue service has gone from, oh man, he's a great preacher, to, isn't that Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? To, we hate him, to, let's kill him. That's a church service. Let's kill him. It didn't even end with the the ironic benediction. They didn't take up a love offering for his ministry, right? Let's take him out and kill him. Eventually, they will, but not on this day. Not on this day. So verse 30 says, he passed through their midst and he went away. I love how that ends. He's like, all right, I'm out of here. (laughs) I'm not hanging around for this. I'm gone. How do you see Jesus? That's a good question. Do you see him as the, as the bearer of good news or as the one who rocks through your boat in a way that you don't quite like? I think it probably depends on how you see yourself. Because those who are poor, those who are captives, those who are blind, those who are oppressed, oppressed they love Jesus. They love Jesus. We're going to see that all through Luke. But those who are certain that they've got what it takes to save themselves, they're offended by Jesus. And we're going to see that all through Luke. 
I want to invite you to see the beautiful Jesus presented here in this text. Anointed by God to proclaim good news for us, favor for us. He's our savior. He's our liberator. He's good. We can trust him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.